This is Socialist Think Tank and I'm Paul Daly. This is the first in our series where we discuss ideas around socialism. What would socialism look like in the real world? We've been told by right-wing politicians that socialist ideas and economics are dangerous. But is that the case? Or is socialism really just a way of solving our problems? I sit down with Harry Cross to discuss what socialism would mean in the real world. Hello and welcome to Socialist Think Tank. Today we have some economics for you from Harry Cross, who is a teacher and researcher in economic history from Durham University. Hello, Harry. Hello, Paul. Thanks very much for having me. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, what is socialism to you? Uh, so for me, socialism is response to capitalism. Uh, we, we live in a capitalist society, which means that all of society at the end of it, especially all of the economy, is organised around making money turn into ever more money. Now, that works very well if you're a capitalist, if you've got someone and you invest your money in expanding your business, uh, in getting more goods in, to be able to get more goods out the door. Um, and for the past few hundred years, that's worked very well if you're very rich. There's been remarkably few periods in history in that time where that wealth has really trickled outwards. And where it has, it's been won through political struggles, uh, notably by trade unions, but also by political parties and by social movements. Um, but that's brought other problems with it as well. It's been brought problems about the control over people's lives and work, um, the monotony and drudgery of work. So socialism is really about saying that money should work for us, we shouldn't work for money, and that our jobs and our lives should give us meaning. Um, we should all um, be able to gain meaning from our lives, and we shouldn't have to slave away simply to be able to have a roof over our heads, a decent place to live, enough to feed ourselves and our family, enough to enrich ourselves through education uh, and culture. These things should be a given, and then what we do to gain more in society should be on top of that. Okay, so you said that uh, capitalism has worked quite well if you've got money. So is that if you have capital? So yes. capital is basically money. How do people think? So if, if you already have money, this works well. Yeah, so capital is a word for money, but specifically money that we're using to turn into more money. So if I get my wages from Durham University and I go down to the supermarket to buy some food for my dinner in the evening, that's not capital. That's just money going from the university's hands into my pocket and into the supermarket's pocket. I'm not using that money for me to try and get my hands on more money the next time around. But some people do do that. Uh, some people are able to use that to uh, um, invest in business premises, get stock in, um, and maybe if you're a very big capitalist to invest in the financial market and own little bits and pieces of other companies. Now, that's a very brave and heroic thing to do, especially if you're a small business owner, you're putting your neck and part of your wealth on the line to try and make a living for yourself and maybe uh, bring some good to your community by providing a service and providing goods to people. But the problem is that, um, well, there's two problems. First of all, that small business owners have a very hard time of it, where big business owners find it very easy to um, expand their business and make yet more money. 
And we're living in a society where the middle stage between that is getting narrower and narrower. We've got a society with lots of people who are very poor, very hard up, including small business owners who are often uh, in debt and struggle to pay down their debts and their rents. Um, and then very large people who, very large capitalists who aren't in trouble at all. And money's a form of social power. And it's not just a way of making a bit more money to put aside for yourself at the end of the day. It's a way to buy influence, be it in the media, in politics, uh, in access to better schools, access to better houses. And that filters all the way through society in ways that ultimately aren't good for anyone. So with capitalism, people with money can make more money. And, you know, so recently we've seen like, a, well, not so recently, but 2008, we saw a financial crash. And, you know, people with a lot of money then came to the state and asked for help. Is that a form of socialism? Absolutely. It's socialism for the rich, uh, but it's capitalism for the poor. Um, we have this myth that capitalism is about brave people who come up with ideas, uh, who risk their money, um, risk their time to try and make those ideas work. And if the ideas work, they'll get more money at the end of the day. Um, but if it doesn't, then it's again, they're next in the line. Um, but what we see is that the people who take these risks, who put in the hours, who own very small businesses, let alone the people who aren't business owners at all and simply work for a wage or a salary, they're not rewarded in the world we live in. Um, whereas the people who are very rich, um, they're able to go in a time of crisis to the state, when, as you say, by the rules of the market, by the rules of capitalism, that should be their money on the line, you know, you, you take a gamble, um, the gamble doesn't pay off, you know, you should be paying the price. But they say to the state, look, we're so valuable for the economy, we employ so many people, if it's the case of a large factory, or if it's a bank, we're looking after people's money, um, so you've got to help us out in some way, you've got to bail us out. Now, that might be acceptable in the crisis itself. If you need to keep the show on the road, if you need to keep money circulating in the economy, maybe it's acceptable for the state to step in. But when things are back to normal, there's got to be a change of the rules. It can't be a return to business as usual. The people who've screwed up have to pay the price. They can't take the money and run. And the people who've been done over by it, um, the people who maybe had their jobs lost because lots of businesses were downsizing in the crisis, they've got to be protected in some way. But unfortunately, it's, it's the exact opposite that happens. So in 2008, the people who had caused the crisis ended up getting bailed out. And what, and, and what happened long term? Obviously, there were there was some sort of repercussions for those for those people. Um, you know, we heard all sorts of things about bankers uh, being, uh, you know, crying on, on Wall Street and, you know, in, in uh, the city of London, they were, they were up in arms. It was an absolute desperate situation. So they long term faced consequences. Is that right? So you would have thought there was a lot of bluster, but nothing came through at the end. And we lived in an absolutely bizarre period when the Conservatives were in power with Cameron and Osborne, when they said it's austerity. Um, we need to balance the books. We need to fix the roof now for the next time. Um, now that things are sunny again, for the next time there's a rainy day, we've all got to tighten our belts. And so public budgets were cut. And there were pay freezes in the public sector. 
Uh, lots of people who worked in the private sector were made redundant, but also didn't see their wages rise. And yet you'll have heard about this thing called quantitative easing. Now, quantitative easing is basically the bailout, um, the longer term bailout for the banks and the large businesses that, again, the government thought you couldn't let them go bust because if they go bust, it becomes a problem, not just for the very rich, but for the people they employ, the people who bank with them. So they kept getting these injections of cash. So they were able to take the money and run. Now, again, there was this theory that if we bailed out the very rich, they'd use that money very generously to employ more people, to bring the jobs back. But they didn't. What's the motivation if they're getting the money anyway? So we need to ask quite serious political questions. If we're able to bail people out, why don't we bail out the people who are vulnerable? Why don't we bail out the people who really take risks running small businesses, um, working very hard for their family uh, in wage and salary jobs, um, people who are up to their neck in debt and aren't going to be able to repay that debt because of the way the economy has been rigged against them. So why can't we direct more state support to those people who are, of course, the vast majority of us? But so during the financial crisis, uh, the banks the banks ran out of money, didn't they? They, they, um, they did something. Um, apparently, it was to do with governments borrowing too much. I've heard in some quarters. You know, I keep on hearing that. The Labour government, in fact, um, were responsible for borrowing too much money at the time, spending too much on public services, which somehow caused a world financial crash. Now, is that true? Well, unfortunately, that's history in, in reverse. There was indeed a, a state debt crisis, but the state debt crisis happened after the financial crisis. Many states uh, in Europe, but also around the world, became heavily indebted, but they were indebted for a number of reasons. Firstly, there was a financial crisis and an economic recession. So more people were asking for job seekers allowance and other forms of benefits. So that was a big new expenditure the state had to pay. Because people had either, were either out of a job or had their pay cut, fewer people were paying tax into the state. So that was money that wasn't coming in anymore. And most importantly, Governments were putting money aside to bail out the big banks, uh, to bail out private companies, again, to keep the show on the road. And that was the reason the governments went into debt. Now, when governments go into debt, they can do it in one of two ways. Um, governments have a central bank, uh, outside of the Eurozone, at least in England, we have a, in Great Britain, we have a central bank called the Bank of England. And the nice thing about the Bank of England is that we own it. And if we want the Bank of England to lend to us, we can tell the Bank of England at what terms they should do so. And if the statutes of the Bank of England don't allow that, then we can change that um, with our sovereign parliament. But instead of doing that, governments, for ideological reasons that maybe I can talk about in a bit, we don't finance ourselves through the, private, through the public sector, through the financial institutions like the Bank of England that we own. We finance ourselves instead through the private sector, through private finance. So we accept the terms that are dictated to us by private banks. Private banks don't want to lend to governments that are extremely in debt. So they are the ones who instruct governments to cut their welfare that they're paying out, to cut the size of the public sector, to balance the books so that the banks can make a quicker return on the money that they're lending to the government. 
Now, that might be acceptable if we're borrowing from the banks for broadly commercial reasons, if we're borrowing from the banks because we want to build a railway, uh, invest in public sector industries that we think will bring a benefit to society, but also bring a return um, in the long term. I think it's completely different when it's an emergency money that we're putting aside to get ourselves out of a crisis. We need to recognise that these are extraordinary circumstances and it is not legitimate to make the public pay the cost of that debt when the public has not been responsible for incurring that debt. We did the same thing with the debts we incurred to fight two world wars. We said because these are special debts, the government has a right to dictate the terms at which the debts will be repaid. These would be debts that will be repaid over the very long term at very low interest rates and they won't affect the day-to-day -day system of taxation and expenditure done by the government. And we need to do the same thing for our crisis expenditure, whether it's in the financial crisis or whether it's because of the coronavirus. So I think I'm gonna sound a little bit like Philomena Kunk here, but, when, but when, um, when I was young, I was taught that um, people put money into a bank and yeah. they, they saved up the money. And, and then what the bank would do is they would say, well, we've, we've now got um, this many people's money. So let's say there's, a, there's 10 people and they all put 10,000 pounds in. So you've got 100,000 pounds. And at that point, the bank might say, actually, not everyone's coming for this. So I might lend one of those people some of that money. So I might lend them 5,000 pounds or something like that. But that money is safely stored in a vault and they lend that money at a little bit of interest because they're taking a risk if everyone comes for the money at the same time they're taking a little bit of a risk so um you know that's that's how banks work is that right um it's more or less right um but the key detail is that the bank isn't lending out your money it's creating new money by lending to people so imagine that you keep all your money in in notes in notes and coins, uh, in hard physical money, and you decide, right, this isn't convenient at all, because um, I might lose it, I might misplace it, uh, so I'm gonna go down and put it in my bank. And you come to the bank of Harry Cross, and you say, Harry Cross, please look after my money, and I say, thanks Paul, um, give me 100 pounds in your finest bank notes, and I stick it in my vaults, now, as you say, it's that money that I then use to give loans to other people. But it's not the case that if someone comes along and wants to borrow 20 pounds from me, that I take a key, I go downstairs, I open the box, and I take out your 20 pounds and lend it to them. If that was the case, there'd be an absolute limit to how much money I could lend. And that would be the amount of money I have in a box, in my vaults, underneath my bank. But most money in the world today, as we know, isn't in the form of coins or banknotes or, or, or gold as it once was. Most money in the world today is numbers on the screen. You go into a shop, you take out your contactless card, you hit it on the machine and money changes hands from your bank account to supermarkets. And before that, it worked the same way, but with numbers written in the book. So this isn't something that's specific to the digital economy. So what does the bank do then if it's sitting on £100 in, in notes and someone comes for it from a loan? I might say, um, let's say you've got um, a, a neighbour called, called John. And John comes to me and John says, I want to borrow £20. I say, great, John, you've got £20. That becomes John's new bank balance. 
and John can then go down to the wholesalers. He can maybe buy a few goods he wants to spend in his shop. He can go to his landlord and uh, pay the rent using those 20 pounds. Okay, 20 pounds won't take him very far. But the 100 pounds you gave me are still sitting in the vaults. They're still there if you want to come to take a bank withdrawal in cash, and they're still there if John wants to come to take some money out in cash. But because most people don't try to take their money out in cash, the money I lend out as a bank can then circulate in the economy, it can do the rounds, and the more I lend out, the more that money can be used to pay people down and to pay people's old debts up. Right, so how much can a, can a bank lend then, let's say? Can they lend only that £100 out because that's what they've got safely stored in the vault? Absolutely not. In theory, there's no limit. If absolutely everyone in County Durham came to me and said, Harry, I want to borrow £100, and I said to them, yes, you've got £100 for me, I'm going to open a new account for you, it's your name, it's got £100 in it, and I only had £100 in cash in my bank, that wouldn't matter, as long as nobody wanted to withdraw that money in cash. And if everyone's then going down to the shop, paying with their bank card, transferring £20 to this person, £10 to that person, the money I've put into these people's accounts as a loan can circulate, and it can circulate as numbers on the screen. When it does become a problem is if suddenly people want to take their money out in cash, then suddenly that does create a limit to how much money I've been able to lend out. So if someone wants to come to take £10 out in cash here, maybe £20 out in cash there, and I'm down to only £70, then someone else comes and puts £20 in, that's fine, then it goes up and down. If everyone's there on the same day and they want to take their cash out, suddenly that's a problem and I risk running out of cash. And that's what happened in the Northeast with the run on Northern Rock at the beginning of the financial crisis. Suddenly everyone wanted to see, everyone wanted to see their money in hard cash and Northern Rock wasn't able to supply everyone's needs. Right, right. So, but the, then the government came along and bailed out Northern Rock, and, and you know they they basically nationalised Northern Rock, didn't they? So they they did that. So where did the government get that money from? Um, so absolutely. So to avoid um, a run on the bank, banks lend a lot of surplus cash to each other. So if HSBC has lots of extra money sitting in the vaults one night, but Barclays has a bit less. Barclays can borrow from HSBC, and if it's a real crisis. Um, the government can step in to inject the money and to help the banks out. The problem is if the bank's in real trouble and it's not necessarily able to pay back the government for the loans it takes out, then the government might take over shares in the bank. So that's what happened with the case of the Royal Bank of Scotland. The government didn't just give loans to the bank, the government brought out a significant part of it and the Royal Bank of Scotland became a state-owned bank. Now, You'd imagine that because the government runs the Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, that if it becomes a state-owned bank, it might be run differently. That maybe there aren't new astronomical levels of CEO pay, in this case to reward failure, because the bank very nearly went bust. You might think that the government might introduce a long-term lending strategy to the bank to make sure the bank lends to sectors that we decide are really important for the economy, maybe small business, green jobs, um, transport, you name it, there's lots of things that need doing in this country. But instead it was business as usual. 
So I think that shows how governments were sort of captured to an ideological belief that the private sector knows best and the government's just there like the bank of mum and dad to bail people out in an emergency. Whereas I think for most people, it's much more obvious the common sense takeaway from the financial crisis is that the system itself was badly wrong. And if the government was going to step in to pluck up the funds, it also had to use that as leverage to change the rules of the game. What else could the government have done at that time? What was their choice? Um, so as I said, there's real ways they could have changed the policy of the bank. They could have said, okay, the bank's going to become a model in equal pay. Uh, for example, introducing rules whereby the CEO can't earn more than five times more than the average or the worst paid worker in the bank. And that means you can still raise your salary, but you've got to raise the salary of everyone else at the same time. So you could create role models like that. And I think you should do that anyway um, across society. And I don't think this question of astronomical pay is separate from the decisions taken by the banks. I think it's a real problem that the people who run the banks, the people who are very well off in society, are paid such astronomical sums that they live in a separate world and they don't see how much the economy that they were creating, the society they were creating, was in trouble long before the financial crisis. We already had people who were net in debt, um, um, ordinary people who were going to their bank every couple of months to refinance themselves or worse payday lenders um, or loan sharks. So that's the first thing to do to address um, financial inequality. Secondly, to decide who gets the money. Again, this idea of quantitative easing, the way the government's bailed out the financial sector in the long term after the financial crisis, has the ideas underpinning it has been you hand this money over to the financial sector, they know best. They know what needs financing, they know what needs to get done because the private sector knows best. Well, I think maybe the private sector of small businesses and people who live on the high street and interact with their local communities maybe do know best. The big banks who have their headquarters in London almost certainly don't. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to say we need the government and we need local government as well to identify what needs doing in society and to direct money towards that as well. Right, so everything you've said there is quite mind-blowing really because we've been told things like, you know, we, we know the saying of there's no magic money tree. There's no such thing as a magic money tree. Um, you can't just invent money. Um, you know, you, you, a, an economy is like a household finances. You know, you have to borrow, but you've got to pay that debt back. Now, where's, where's that come from? Because that sounds absolutely nothing like what you've just described there. Absolutely. And I think it's a problem with economics itself that economics isn't asking the right questions. In the 19th century, economics was really interested in the big picture. It was interested in where did money come from? Where did it go? And what role did everyone have to play in the national economy? Workers, business owners, landowners, um, you name it. And they had to try and understand what was everyone's contribution to the economy and how did everyone earn the money that they were taking out of it. So there were really big debates about where the money come from and where did profits come from? Who had a right to profits? But then in the last century, that all changed. And we moved from the big picture economics called macroeconomics to small picture economics called microeconomics, which tried to understand the behavior of the individual. And it promoted this idea that everybody, no matter who you are, no matter where you're working, is basically 
a calculating business owner making decisions all the time. That a worker deciding how many hours they'll work in a given week is choosing between leisure and work, between how much of their free time they want to give up to get a little bit more extra money in their pockets and how much money they want to spend um, by themselves, just enjoying themselves. Similarly, a business owner is making a market decision about how much of their money they want to risk investing it in business expansion and how much money they want to keep safe sitting as cash in the bank. Now, this approach to economics does tell us some valuable things. It helps us think about how calculating profit-seeking individuals operate in the market, but it also makes, I think, an unjust and unfair view of the world. Lots of us don't think purely about how we're going to get more money at the end of the day than we did at the beginning um, of the day, or if we do, it's because we're forced to think that way because we're because we're on the red line, as it were. Um, and workers, I think, for example, they don't choose how many hours they work a day. They don't choose how much money they're going to they're going to earn. They're forced into accepting working conditions that are imposed on them by the market. So whereas microeconomics sort of creates this idea that we're all free agents within an equal horizontal market, it hides the extent to which the economy is shaped by unequal forms of power. Now you just asked me where this idea came from, that the economy is like a household budget and you can't balance the books. You have to balance the books and you can't spend more than you earn. I think it's part of the same economic way of thinking, which is to say that a government is just like a business, it's just like a household, that everyone's just doing the same thing and adding up money in and money out, and that a government's no different to a business and is no different to a worker. Now, I don't think that's true. If I fall on hard times and I decide, okay, I'm gonna start buying a few, a few fewer chocolate bars, crisp packets, magazines, things I really enjoy, at the end of the month, I've got a bit extra money in the bank. That's a shame for me. It might help my bank balance a bit. There's not going to be a problem for the supermarket selling um, sweets and chocolates. It's not going to be a problem for the magazine seller. If the government does decide to cut back on expenditure, it does become a big problem for lots of us because the money that government spends trickles through into society. Um, the money that it spends on public servant salaries then gets spent in private businesses and then comes back to the government in tax revenue. So money is sort of like a lifeblood that pumps through the economy, keeping it going. And when government cuts that off, that can become a big problem for all of us and it makes the problem worse rather than better. So, right, so it's, it's, not, like a, it's not like a household budget at all. You know, it's, it's not something that you have to pay back straight away or, or ever or, or is there a magic money tree? You know, I'm quite confused here because it seems that banks can create money and governments can create money. So is there a magic money tree or is there any truth to the fact that, you know, we've got to pay back what we owe and who do we owe to? Um, so again, absolutely. And, um, and, and more importantly, most households don't operate the way that we're told. Most households do go into debt for more than they earn to buy, for example, a car or the house itself, you go into debt and you're not expected to pay it back in one year. So if I just taken out a mortgage to buy my house, and I was living in my house, and someone came and said, Harry, you own five times, you, you owe five times more than you earn in debt. I go, oh my God, but that's completely normal because I'm not paying all of that back in one year. 
And yet those are the sorts of stories that people tell looking at government books because they're motivated by ulterior objectives of encouraging governments to cut public expenditure and to cut taxes on businesses especially. And the other key difference, as you pointed out, between households and governments is that households don't get to print their own money and governments do. Now, again, there's a limit to how much you can do that. You can't just print money as much as you want to buy whatever you want. If you do, you'll create runaway inflation because if you print too much money, then the price of everything will go up to the point that prices are rising and skyrocketing year in, year out, that no one can plan effectively for the future. That's clearly not the world we live in. So the fact that economics and politicians are so obsessed about that, it's the obsession of a previous generation. It's the obsession of the 1970s when we did have very high inflation, not hyperinflation, but very high inflation. That's partly because, uh, to get a bit technical, we had financial exchange controls. So it's very difficult to take money out of the UK and into another country. So any extra money people earned, they had to spend in the UK. And so that drove up prices of people selling goods in the UK. We don't live in that society anymore. Um, I'm 27. I've never experienced inflation in the double digits in my life, no, nothing near to it. And yet in response to coronavirus, when the economy's in recession and we're threatened with deflation, with prices going down rather than up, the governor of the Bank of England is still coming out writing articles in the Financial Times saying we need to be very careful so that, the way we, so that we don't inject too much money in the economy to cause runaway inflation. To my mind, this is just madness. This is just trying to solve the problems of a generation ago, not understanding the world we live in and being prisoners for a very narrow and outdated economic ideology. We've talked a lot about like money and, and things, and, and I was always under the impression that the harder you work, the more money you earn, and work and money are related. So where's the relationship between work and money? Does hard work reward people? So we're told, but unfortunately, um, in the UK and in much of the world, this is not specific to the UK, wages have not risen significantly since the late 1970s, since the changes brought in by the Conservative Party under Margaret Thatcher, but also by the Labour Party under Tony Blair. And it accepted a lot of the economic policy of the Conservatives. And that's why we forget the fact that the United Kingdom today is the richest it's ever been. Our economy has never been worth as much as it is today. Our output has never been worth as much as it is today. But that's not most people's experience of the economy. Um, households in England tend to be in debt. Um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was companies that went into debt to, to, to fund their expansion, the same way that you might go into debt to buy a car um, that helps you drive to your new job or to buy a house that helps you add security for your family near to where you live. So a few decades ago, companies were financing any growth in the economy by paying to expand their factories, to employ more people, but so they could produce more things for the benefit of all of us. Now, it's households that are going into debt to keep up with rent payments, to be able to keep food on the table when they're forced into self-employment against their will maybe, because they can't find a good job. So it's no longer the case that work brings more money in. Um, people are working harder and harder, but for the same amount of money. 
So people are working harder and harder for the same amount of money. Governments can, can invent money and, and, and could invest that in people. Um, you've mentioned the word trickle a couple of times, and it's reminded me of something I've heard before, which is trickle-down economics. Now, I think this was invented, well, this was certainly pushed forward by Reagan and Thatcher, is that right, in that era? But before then, you know, um, the USA sent people to the moon, for example, and we haven't really seen those kind of programs, those really, really vast state programs in a long, long time. So what is the benefit of trickle-down economics and what is it? Exactly. So in the 40s, 50s and 60s in the US, in the UK and lots of countries, these were still capitalist societies. These were still societies um, where that, that, was, that, were, that were hierarchical in terms of there were people who were rich, very rich middling, poor, very poor, um, but there were not the same extreme levels of poverty as we see today, even in a rich society like ours, and there were not the same levels of extreme wealth either. You'd almost think that the two were related. And it wasn't taboo then for the government to sit down with big business and with trade unions and to say, these are our long-term objectives for the economy. These are the forms of energy we want to invest in to make sure that we can keep houses warm, to keep the lights on, as it were, to keep um, the country supplied with electricity. This is the infrastructure we want to invest in. Now, that's good for people because it means that we can elect politicians who explain what priorities they have, both for our local area and for the country as a whole, and who have an eye on how changes in the economy might eventually benefit us. It's also good for business as well. It means business is able to plan, it knows what sort of infrastructure they need to invest in themselves, also where they can rely on the state for investing in things that we lack today, like a good broadband service in all parts of the country. And we know how valuable the internet is. We've been forced to discover it now, we're all forced to stay at home um, all of the time. We know how important um, a good internet connection is, not just for our own lives, but for the lives of any business. We know how important uh, transport links are, how important public transport links are for being able to get our workers um, on site in any given day. And it shouldn't be taboo for governments to sit down and plan this. However, exactly as you mentioned, a new ideology came in in the 1980s called trickle-down economics, which decided that business knows best, there is no role for the state, the state is taxing too much of its infrastructure projects, we need to tax less, hand this money back to the ultra-rich, but it won't just benefit the ultra-rich, the argument went. If you hand this money over to them, they'll know what to do with it. They'll know who to give loans to. They'll know what to invest in. And then the benefits will trickle back for everyone. Well, we've had an experiment for about 40 years now, and I think the results are in. Wages have stagnated, but profits for the very rich have gone up and up and up. And that's sadly not as it should be. So where does that end up? Where does that wealth end up? So it's not trickling down. So where is it? Uh, it's going into people's bank accounts. Um, um, government deficits have, have grown not because of expenditure on welfare, on health, on education. We forget that in the 50s and 60s, we had a much larger um, welfare state than we do at the moment. Um, and yet government debt was much smaller as a percentage of GDP. And the reason government debt's gotten larger is because governments have become more scared or less willing to tax because governments 
have been captured by the very, very rich. Um, and so governments are going into debt. But if the governments are going into debt because they're pumping money into the economy and getting nothing back, that money has to end up somewhere and it goes into the pockets of the people who are lending, which again is the private sector. And when I say the private sector, I mean the really big players. I mean the big banks, um, the big investment funds, the people who own shares in smaller companies, the people who give loans to governments and who get money back for it at the end of the day. So when we hear about money ended up in the Cayman Islands untaxed and you know all this money, now you know people talk about billionaires and and how much wealth they have and maybe they're keeping it offshore and things like that. But haven't they worked hard for that money? Haven't they earned it? You know, like, you know, and it's only a big million, isn't it? Yes. Well, um, I don't know how much you're worth or I'm worth. Um, definitely much less than a billion. So. You could believe it maybe if uh, we lived in a society that maybe some people were richer than poorer, but on the whole, we were much more equal. So, okay, they've worked twice as hard as me, so they've earned twice as much. Fair enough. Then the moment you've got someone who's a millionaire or a billionaire, and I think it just can't be possible that they work hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times harder than I do. There just aren't enough hours in a day. So clearly, it's not about how many hours you put in. Or how hard you work. In fact, I think we're coming to realise in the coronavirus, a lot, a lot of the people who work the hardest, who get up the earliest while most of us are still sleeping, who sweep the streets, who deliver the post, who work in the factories, uh, who, who fix out utilities and infrastructure when they go down, are also often the least paid and don't get that sort of recognition. And people who are billionaires have often managed to corner a particular part of society. They live not by producing things and making things anymore. They're not factory owners, the very rich in society. They're not people who are responsible for making things. They're people who are responsible for looking after our money and using it for their gains in the financial market, for lending to people, for buying and reselling shares. And they're playing a casino type game in London and they're growing very rich of it. And when it all goes wrong, they don't pay the price, the government just steps in. So when, when a, let's say a company like, I don't know, like let's say Amazon, and if they are, if they're earning a lot of money, you know, you've got Jeff Bezos, who's is going to be a trillionaire apparently very soon. He has workers that are earning so little that they have to have government welfare. So, um, how how does that fit in with this whole model? Where does this money go? Could they not just pay a little bit more and make a little bit less profit? So at least those people in those jobs have enough to live on without relying on welfare in order to like, just eat. I think Amazon's a really great example. It doesn't make um, it doesn't make anything. It doesn't make the books and the computers and the clothes and all the other things it sells. And in fact, a very large proportion of the things sold on Amazon are things sold by other sellers using Amazon as a platform. So Amazon isn't just a very big shop. It's the thing that other shops have to go through online in order to sell. It's sort of like um, a very large supermarket, where, um, like the Metro Centre, where other shops are forced to go to the Metro Centre, accept its terms and conditions, in order to be able to get a stool there for anyone to look at. If you've got a shop 
um, maybe a few miles down the road from the metro centre, very few people are going to look at it and stop there because everyone's going to the metro centre. Amazon's like that, but on a much larger scale. If I've got a website and I'm selling my goods on there, but I'm not selling on Amazon, then good luck to me. Some people manage, but lots of people find it very, very difficult. So Amazon is able to set the rules of the game. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? And we, this is where we really need government to, set it, to step in. Government doesn't work for Amazon. Government and the politicians we elect work for us. And they need to be brave to stand up to Amazon and to say, we have laws in this country, laws about minimum wage, also laws and um, recommendations about a living wage, that we, that, um, which is the minimum needed to be able to live in dignity. And I think the richest country on earth should be paying a living wage, and we should force Amazon to respect that. Now, as you said very pertinently, workers at Amazon are often in receipt of government welfare. So what does that mean? Who is that government welfare going to? It's going to Amazon. It's subsidizing Amazon so it doesn't have to pay these workers enough to live on. And um, I think that's a scandal. I think the government needs to step in to make sure that the money it spends out is being used appropriately. And we need to accept the fact that government does have the power to regulate the economy, to regulate companies like Amazon, and we shouldn't be scared of it. Okay, so I think we've really, really outlined massive problems here. Do we have any solutions to this? Um, I think, I think there, there are solutions to be had. And before talking about the nitty gritty of the detail, I think there's a wider principle to be made. We forget that money is something that we've created as humans, as a society, to make our lives easier. It'd be very difficult if we didn't have money to come and barter and try and swap and exchange goods for each other. So money's supposed to make life a bit easier for all of us. And yet that's not how most of us experience money. Most of us are working for money. We experience it as something external to us that imposes rules on how we live our lives. I don't get to choose the pay that I get. I don't get to choose the job that I have. I'm limited by the training and qualifications I have. Um, I can choose to retrain myself to something else. That's an investment in time. Um, am I able to do that? Um, it, it, is that something that's financially accessible to me? So people are constrained in all sorts of ways in the economy they live to accept working conditions that are dehumanizing, that are degrading, that are not rewarded well in terms of pay. Um, and they do this because they're forced to pay ever higher rents. Fewer and fewer people own the houses that they live in. That in itself is getting increasingly expensive. So money's constraining us rather than enabling us. So we need to ask the big questions that you and I have been talking about in this podcast, which is, where does the money come from? And the money comes from two places. Firstly, it can be created by the government when it decides to fund things that it decides are important. If you, people say, oh, you can't print money, but if you go to any bank machine in January, stick your card in, take out a few notes in cash, and you'll see it's brand new. It's stuff that's been printed recently. So government is able to create small amounts of money to keep the economy ticking over. And we need to start thinking a lot more seriously about who gets that money and what gets financed. Secondly, we need to think about the real masters of money. Now, that's the banks. Banks take all our money in for safekeeping, but then they also create new money by lending money to people. 
Now, people can use that money that's lent to them to withdraw cash from the banks. And as long as everyone doesn't do that at the same time, that's not a problem for the banks and they can sit on the cash that we've deposited with them. But the banks choose what they finance and they like to choose things that are safe. They like to choose things that are short term. They'll get their money back seriously. And they don't really care if you can't make loan repayments, because if you go bust, they'll come and they'll repossess your company or worse, repossess your house, your car, um, things that are very valuable to you and essential for life. Now, if we say the government's already extremely involved in the banking sector, the government bails out the banking sector when it goes wrong. The government injects money into the banking sector to make sure it's got the cash to keep giving loans, to keep making sure people can take cash out of the bank machine when they ask that they have to do it. The government should also be doing that to give instructions to the banking sector about what it needs to do to fulfill the political objectives of the government, which should be determined in a general election by parties that are not afraid to talk about economics, to talk about wealth and power, poverty and wealth, and how we're gonna address that to build a more equal and fair society. Now there's this expression, never waste a good crisis. Coronavirus is really awful. It's forcing us to accept much more monotonous lives at home. But it's also giving us time to think. It's making us realize who we really value the most in society. And it's not the bankers who've got detached penthouses somewhere in the south of England that they can run away to when they need to self-isolate. So people have to get up early in the morning who lives in blocks of flats or terrace houses, who go and work shifts in hospitals, in factories, um, you name it, and those are the people who we need to bail out because they deserve to be bailed out, bailed out, and it's not their fault that those households are increasingly in debt. And we need a political movement that's willing to fight for that. So where does, where does aspiration fit in all of this? Because we're often told about aspiration and uh, we should be aspiring towards something. We shouldn't be limiting ourselves to the idea that we will do these key worker jobs that is so important. So where does that fit in? It's one of the paradoxes that when if you poll people and you say, do you think that if you work hard and play by the rules that you'll be able to get on in life, people say, yes, yes, I, I think that's true. But if you poll people and if you ask them, do you think the system is rigged in favour of the rich and powerful, people will always say, yes, yes, I think that's true. Well, I think the second one's true and I think the first one should be true. I think there's no shortage of aspiration in society. I think there's no shortage of people wanting to work hard and get on. But the rules are stacked against them. And that means that some pretty awful things happen. Firstly, people start to blame themselves. And people think that maybe they've been lazy. Maybe they need to work harder. Maybe they need to make themselves go to work even when they feel sick. They shouldn't let themselves take days off. Um, maybe they need to accept worse and worse conditions and believe it's their fault that they're not yet, not even rich, but financially secure. Or the other thing is that they can blame other people. This idea that elsewhere there's people who aren't aspirational, who aren't working hard, they're cheating, they're living off the system, whether it's immigrants, whether it's benefit cheats. Whereas I think we need to realise that society is structured by power relations. If people are living on benefits, that's because they're forced into a position where they don't have a job. There are fewer jobs than there are people who want jobs. That's just a fact of the economy we live in and the jobs that exist are not good quality jobs. So it is not true that everyone who wants a job can find one. And I think that most people in society don't want to be rich. 
They don't want to live in a mansion and put millions away in the bank account. But they do want to live decently and in dignity. And I think that that's a right. And I think political movements need to fight for that and explain to people that it's their right and the system's rigged against them. And I think trade unions do that as well. So I think people need to start realising that the system's rigged against them, also not be afraid to take the steps where we band together, because that's how we're going to get our own back. Okay, so where does this fit in with socialism? How is socialism the solution to this? Because again, I've heard time and again that we've been proved socialism's been proved not to work because look at Russia. That's what we, we're told quite often. So is that true? So we live in the societies we've been saying all along that's a capitalist society where so it's based on people who've got money trying to turn that into yet more money and they largely succeed. Now the system's been successful at doing that. Both the United Kingdom and the world is the richest it's ever been. And yet we don't feel like that. We feel poor among the riches that surround us, the riches that do not belong to us. Now that's actually been the history for most of capitalism, despite what we're told. There was only a brief period when that was different, and that was the period after the Second World War. In the 1930s, there was a Great Depression, where lots of companies and banks went bust, and the government stepped in because it had to. And then again, in the Second World War, the state stepped in to run a wartime economy, so it could beat um, the, the fascist powers, so it could beat Germany, it could beat Japan and Italy. And because the government was forced to step in, the government took over the running of the economy. And it forced it to think long term, uh, and it was forced to plan. And after the Second World War, people remembered the hardship that followed the First World War, and they said, never again. We've shown in the Second World War and the way we run a wartime economy that we can run an economy for the good of everybody. It means we can do that in peacetime as well. And a lot of us today, even people like me who weren't alive then, but hear about it from my parents, um, we're very nostalgic for those times. We're nostalgic for the times where if you worked hard, your wages would slowly and gradually go up through the course of your life, where your company would make decent contributions towards your pension, where you would be able to afford to buy the house, to buy a house you wanted to live in, because the government was building enough and because wages were rising faster than house prices. Now that system's been broken, um, largely in the 1980s, largely by a political struggle that was funded by the very, very rich who wanted to win the economy back for them, and they succeeded. And it was a very bitter struggle that pitted trade unions against the power of organised money. Now, the 40s, 50s and 60s weren't rosy times either. Although people were financially secure, work was very monotonous. Um, there was a, we lived in very standardised societies and people yearned for more flexibility and more freedom. So I think we're now at a stage where societies are rich enough, we need to think honestly about how we can redistribute the wealth more fairly and give people more free time and freedom so that their lives have more meaning. We are already in a situation where few people find it very difficult to be able to work full time. Lots of us are working flexible jobs, where we're not in work five days a week, but we're also not sure exactly what our hours will be a few months from now, or maybe even a few weeks from now. Um, so we're never fully relaxed when we're by ourselves. We're always thinking about how can we find enough work to pay down the bills. We're always being pushed and our jobs are more and more squeezed out from us. 
So what if we accepted this work structure where people, no one's working a full five day week, where people are working flexible hours and we embraced it, but we combined it with the financial stability that's been robbed from us since the 1980s. What if we said it's now time, we are now rich enough as a society to introduce a four day working week. And that sounds as utopian now as a five day working week sounded a century ago because our great-great-grandparents would have worked six-day working weeks um, in despicable conditions, and we've slowly been able to claw that back. I think that that would be a really important first thing that political movements, um, both on the left but also in trade unions, should be fighting for as something that's realistic. We have the wealth to do it, and if we all worked four days a week instead of five, and that left a little bit of extra work that we needed doing, been great. The people coming up behind us leaving school at the moment, that's a good job sat ready for them. So let's distribute the work more equally, but let's distribute the money more equally as well. So that doesn't really sound, so what, it sounds like what you're saying is that people who work hard, um, everyday people, key workers, should have a little bit more money and that would mean that actually that money would circulate in the economy better. So Absolutely. Yeah, so this isn't, like, this isn't the state giving everyone the exact same salary. This is something totally different to that. Absolutely. It's not about standardisation for the sake of standardisation. It's about still having um, diversity and creativity in the economy. That's what's being robbed from us at the moment. Um, the ideology underpinning capitalism is one of freedom and free choice. But do we live in a society where um, most of us feel that we're really free? Um, maybe on a Saturday afternoon when we finally recovered from sleeping in from the week before, um, and then again a bit on a Sunday, but God, I'm, all, I'm thinking as well, I'm back at work on Monday morning. And that's for those of us who are lucky to work Monday to Friday on a regular basis. A lot of us aren't given that privilege. Now, if you give extra money to a banker, they're gonna stick a lot more of it in stocks and shares, in their existing bank account, in their tax haven, in their new property, Whereas the rest of us, if you give us a bit of extra money, we're much more likely to pay it on public transport to go on a trip to the seaside, pay for an ice cream from the ice cream van there, pay a little bit more extra money on the high street, pay for arts and culture. The money flows back into our communities and the more money circulates around the economy, the more jobs it can sustain, the more livelihoods and meaning it can create for all of us. So socialism is basically just a more fair system. It's a more fair system, and it's about making sure that the price is right. At the moment, wages are stagnating, but the cost of property has been going up faster than wages. And if the cost of properties and houses in the UK is going up faster than wages, then it means that the simple mathematical rule that people either can't afford to buy houses anymore with the money that they earn, or that they have to go into greater and greater amounts of debt to buy the houses they live in. And if people are renting instead of owning, they're also renting more and more and more because property prices are going up. Similarly, the cost of lending from banks is going up and up and up. So people who want to invest in small businesses are having to go into more and more debt. It's a simple question of numbers. So we need to reverse this. So the expansion of wages is faster than the expansion of the, of the prices we pay in the economy. So our living standards go up in line with the wealth that we're creating in the economy. We're creating more wealth than we ever have before in the United Kingdom and around the world through the goods we create, through the services we provide in the economy, but that wealth doesn't flow back to us. It flows into the pockets of the banks and the offshore capitalists, and we need to make sure that money flows in a different way around the economy.
You need to look at where money goes into the economy and who gets um, the benefit of government expenditure and bank loans. We need to direct them more intelligently and we need to make sure money comes out of the economy as well fairly to fund that through a fair tax system to make sure we don't get huge imbalances of wealth, which also becomes a huge imbalance of power in society. Okay, so I've, uh, just one point finally, who wouldn't want that system? You know, that sounds like a really, really nice system. It sounds fair. You aren't taking money away from people who, who deserve it and who've earned it, but you are saying, well, actually this money will be more useful in the pockets of people who are going to spend it rather than the pockets of people who are going to hide it in the Cayman Islands. So um, just some final words, Harry, before we sign off. As you say, it's common sense economics, common sense politics. Who could disagree with a fairer society for all and a fairer economy for all where the work and the wealth is fairly distributed? We've got to realise what we're up against. The world that was taken away from us in the 1980s, the world where we had the secure job that was easy to get on the property ladder, that was broken by the power of big money. But big money didn't do it alone. They're the 1%. The 1% are never going to win an election. They invested a lot of money in defining a new language, a new way of thinking that ordinary people could start to use, to vote, um, to change the way they vote, to change the way people think and behave, to make them think maybe we really are all just selfish bastards who are in it for ourselves. To think that maybe if we do give the ultra rich a bit more wealth, that wealth will trickle down as well because the rich will know how to spend it. And to think maybe that if we tax millionaires too much, that's unfair they'll be a millionaire too one day. We've been waiting long enough. No one in my family has become a millionaire yet. And we need to find a new language that means that the, economy, the economics of fairness and of hope becomes as common sense as the economy, economics of greed has become for people in the, in the previous generation. That's a lot harder to do because we don't have the very rich outside and we don't have the very rich paying for think tanks, paying for talking points, paying for newspaper columnists. That's why I'm really happy that you're running this podcast and why we've got very dynamic thinking people in the trade union movement, in political movements, and just in their local community, thinking, trying to understand what's going on. As I said, coronavirus is a big opportunity for us to stay at home, take a pause, have a think, talk to each other, and to say the society we lived in before coronavirus wasn't fair. So the society we build coming out of it should be a lot fairer. And this is a historic opportunity to do that.